Ecclesiastes 2. We're working our way through the series in Ecclesiastes. And uh, in this passage, the, the, the teacher or the quester, as we're calling him in this book, he, he steps into the shoes of King Solomon, greatest king who lived in Israel, most illustrious king who lived in Israel. And he, and he looks around from Solomon's perspective at life. He explores what life means. He explores what pleasure means. He explores uh, the meaning of the world from in, in, in Solomon's shoes. So he says in verse 1, of Ecclesiastes 2. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I brought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. Just leave it there for a minute. Really what, uh, really what we're looking at here, I think, is, is basically an ancient Jewish version of Donald Trump. As far as I can tell, that's probably the best way to describe to you what's going on here. I mean, Donald Trump, let's just, let's just think about the Don for a minute, the Donald. You know, I mean, massive property, empire, untold wealth, big reputation, huge ego. He's got the comb over. He's got it all going on. And, and of course, the one thing that Donald Trump has, which Solomon didn't have, is the TV program, right? He's got one up there, you know, The Apprentice. And uh, it always amazed me with The Apprentice. You've got these self-respecting executives, you know, full of potential. Uh, just the amount of schmoozing that goes on, the amount of greasing up to the dawn, you know, to get the job as his executive, as his apprentice, uh, seems crazy to me. It's probably the, re- the only reality TV show that is more about the host than it is about the actual contestants, do you think? And, and, then, and then you have the celebrity apprentice, a whole another level, you know, the, all these celebrities who have already made it big. They've already made their money, they've already got famous, but still they come and subject themselves to the dawn, to the boardroom, to the you're fired, you know, and I know they're raising money for charity and that's all, that's all good stuff, but it's a pretty high price to pay, isn't it, for the charity dollar, that level of humiliation. And of course, New Zealand didn't want to be left out, so we created the New Zealand Apprentice, remember, with Terry Serapisos, he's got his own battles now that he's fighting, but, he, but he, he wasn't the dawn, was he, you know, he never quite, he just wasn't quite the dawn, he didn't have quite the, 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 the ego, didn't quite have the personality, didn't have the comb over, he just wasn't quite it. It's all about the dawn, you know. But when you think about Donald Trump, really, you look at this passage and you'd have to say, even Donald Trump is pretty eclipsed by this guy. Pretty eclipsed by King Solomon because King Solomon, as I was thinking about it, probably he's more of a combination of Donald Trump, Barack Obama and Hugh Hefner. I would say, all put together, you know, between the political power, the woman, and the, and the wealth. You know, it's kind of this, this conglomeration of all three. 
He's an extraordinary guy, Solomon, and uh, you know, it's not, I don't think it's actually him that's writing this, but the teacher, the quester, is writing this about him. But just look at this catalogue of stuff that Solomon pursued as he, as he pursued pleasure in his life. He pursues, if you start in the beginning of the chapter, in verse 2, he pursues humor, laughter, he talks about, so he obviously liked cracking the odd joke. He's a bit of a prankster. He liked good humor, and he liked good wine, cheering myself with wine. I don't think that means he got drunk all the time. I think he's probably a connoisseur. He had his own vineyards. He knew, he knew about wine. He, he, he was a fine wine connoisseur. He liked talking about wine. So he had humor. He has wine. And then, of course, as king, he undertakes these huge projects. He's into architecture and construction. He, he, he builds a royal palace for himself, massive, huge, opulent royal palace. And he builds all these other houses as well. He undertakes these huge public works projects. He builds vineyards. He's into his, his viticulture. He builds gardens and parks and reserves all over the place. I mean, if, if, a, if a head of state today did what he did and created these kinds of reserves and, and huge park areas, he'd be celebrated as a hero. And then people would wonder where on earth he's got the money to pay for it all, or the tax dollars, you know. But Solomon did this. Parks and reserves everywhere. And then irrigation systems to water the trees and make sure everything's working right. So he had all of these public works projects going on. He also was, he had a lot of human capital, Solomon. A lot of slaves. And the thing that was cunning about Solomon is is he, he had these slaves and then his slaves had slaves. So he ended up having just like an extended family a whole clan of slaves, all these employees of his household, these slaves that were subjected to him and and did his bidding. And as well as slaves, as well as the human capital, he's got livestock, a whole lot of cattle, sheep and bulls and goats. He's got more of them than you'd possibly know what to do with, so that's revenue generating for him as well. But he doesn't, see, this is the thing, he doesn't just have all of his assets tied up, all of his cash tied up in assets and capital. He's He's got a lot of cash reserves. He's got liquid assets. He's got silver and gold. And it didn't hurt that every time Israel conquered another country, they'd take their treasure as well. So he's got this stockpile of just cash and and, and, and items of gold and silver. He is a rich, rich man. He loved entertainment. We're told here that he has male and female singers. So basically, he's got his own choir. Some of you were keeping up to this point, weren't you? Like, yeah, I've got the livestock, got the hu- but you don't have your own choir, do you? Hey, you're not going home this afternoon and say, oh, what should we do? We have, why don't we get the choir out, sing a few songs? You don't have a choir. Solomon had his own choir on demand whenever he wanted to, take requests. So entertainment, and then he had plenty of women. Solomon was a, an absolutely infamous womanizer. 700 wives and 300 concubines, just women exclusively for sexual pleasure. So 1,000 women. All right. I, it's best I just move on, to be honest. It's, <laughs> I, there's a lot of things we could say. Let's just keep going. So woman, sex, and then, and then finally power. You know, he, he, he says in verse 9, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And that's true. Solomon, you can read this stuff in, in, in First and Second Kings. He, he pushed out the borders of Israel further than anyone else had done. Israel was a bigger and greater nation under Solomon's rule uh, than it had been previously. And so he really knew how to govern. He really knew how to fight battles. He knew how to expand Israel's territories. 
So there it is, and this, you have to admit, this is quite hard to relate to, isn't it, as you read that? I mean, this is so above and beyond anything that you and I are really going to achieve. But this is where you have to see the basic driver of, of what's going on. And the, underneath all of this, what Solomon was pursuing was pleasure. That's it. And it says so at the beginning of the chapter. Testing pleasure. To see what is the meaning in pleasure. Where does it achieve? What does it achieve? Where does it get you? And, and when you can boil it down to that, to this pursuit of pleasure, we're finding something that is common to us all. You may not have your own choir at home, but we are all driven to some degree or other, to pursue pleasure. We pursue pleasure in all kinds of ways. Just think about this in, in, in your life. What are some of the things that bring you pleasure? It might be fine wine. It might be humor. It might be achieving stuff. Because pleasure doesn't have to be just sitting back and doing nothing. Pleasure can be the pleasure of achieving something, the pleasure of, of getting to the end of a project. When Anna and I uh, take possession of our house in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to try and do some stripping the wallpaper, plastering and painting, and I can already, I'm already visualizing the day when all that's finished and the walls are painted and it's just as we want it, sitting down, and the pleasure that that renovation will have brought. You know, th- th- there can be pleasure in, in, in coming to the end of a project, starting up a new business, getting a long-term project complete. That generates pleasure for us. It may be the pleasure of, of money and wealth. And, and, and who of us, when you, when you click online and open up the bank account, online banking, and you see the bank balance has gone up, jumped up, who doesn't get a little kick of pleasure from that? I mean, it brings us a degree of pleasure, having the money go up, having the investments work, having the cash flow positive, accumulating the assets. It is pleasurable. Many people do pursue pleasure in sex. And there's a whole industry devoted to it. And, and with internet pornography, it, it's, it's getting more and more easy. It's getting more and more secretive. It's becoming more and more addictive. And the manifestations of this are just becoming more and more perverse. You have sexting and all these things now because of an addiction, because of a, an insatiable craving for pleasure. A, a biochemical pleasure in the brain. Maybe it's the pleasure of, of power. And it might not be the power of running a country. It could be the power of being a team, lead, a team leader rather than a team member. Just getting in that spot so you can get this team where it needs to go. And when you get that role, there is a degree of pleasure. Getting that manager spot, getting that next run, getting that next business, there is a degree of pleasure in that. We pursue pleasure in all kinds of ways and not necessarily bad ways. But look at where this ended up for Solomon. In verse 10, he says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I had surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. So he's not saying that it didn't bring him any pleasure. You notice that? He's not saying it wasn't pleasurable. It was. In fact, he says uh, this was the reward. For all. There, there was a reward in this stuff. There was a profit 
There, there is a kick, there is a buzz, there is a rush, there is a sense of accomplishment with all of these things that we do in life. But what he says is ultimately, when he steps back from it all, these things are meaningless. Hebel, remember that word? Hebel, meaningless. Why? Because they don't go anywhere. Meaning is connected to ending. And these things that we run after and spend our time on, even though they may be good in and of themselves, they don't get anywhere ultimately. They have no ultimate end. So they're like a chasing after the wind. And they leave us profoundly unsatisfied. And they leave us then chasing after more. Constantly thinking we've got to get the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, the next position, the next relationship, the next addiction, then I'm going to be happy, then I'm going to be satisfied. There's a survey that came out this week of millionaires in the United States, people that have cash assets of of a million dollars or more, and they asked the question, are you happy with the amount of wealth you've got? 42% said no. And so they asked them, what would be the level at which you would be happy? And they took all these answers and averaged it out. And you know what the answer was? 7.5 million. That's a pretty specific figure, 7.5. So apparently, you know, a million's not enough, but 7.5 million is. But you and I know what happens when you get to 7.5 million. Well, I don't know. You might. <laughs> but, you know, I'm sure that's not enough either. Because by then, you know, you've, you've geared yourself so, you, you know, every cent counts and you desperately need another 7.5. It's a never-ending thing. This is why we end up where Solomon is of saying, really, does this stuff ambition, power, sex, is it really of any lasting value? Is it really meaningful? And so what Christians tend to do at this point, this is where we get to the fork in the road, often what Christians conclude is this, to pursue pleasure is wrong. We should not pursue pleasure. Instead, we should pursue God. This is often what people conclude. This is often where it goes. So Solomon was misguided by even searching for pleasure. Pleasure is selfish. This is wrong. Instead, what we should pursue is God and the spiritual. So we kind of assume, well, the pleasure drive is like the sinful, selfish part of us that wants pleasure. But the really spiritual part of us, that wants God. That wants spiritual things. That wants holiness. But the problem I have with this is, who says pleasure and God are opposites? Right? Who says that happiness and God are mutually exclusive? Who says it's pleasure or God? There's a long Christian tradition of saying we should not pursue, we should not seek pleasure, we should not seek happiness, we should not seek our own good, we should not seek our own enjoyment, instead we should seek God. But what if we seek pleasure by seeking God? What if we can pursue pleasure by pursuing God? The person who really changed my mind on this is C.S. Lewis. He's got a wonderful quote in his essay, The Weight of Glory. He says, If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. 
Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. That's brilliant. There's just a world of meaning in that quote. And what he points out is that this desire that you and I have for pleasure is fundamentally good. That's the first step. I know it it sounds selfish. Well, surely I shouldn't desire pleasure. God gave you the desire for pleasure. He gave you a desire for happiness. He gave you a desire to enjoy life. He gave you your your pleasure drive, and it is good, and it is holy, and it is God-given. So let's not get off on the wrong foot to start with and say that this whole pursuit is wrong. Solomon was after the right thing. But the problem is, as C.S. Lewis ingeniously puts it, our drive for pleasure is not too strong, it's too weak. We have like this little tap that's half turned on, this little desire for pleasure, just a little puny desire for pleasure, and we, and we can't imagine what real pleasure is like, so we settle for so little. We settle for puny things because we've only got a puny pleasure drive. We settle for things like pornography, like alcoholism, like workaholism, like shopaholism, if there is such a word. We settle for these things because they give us a little pleasure kick, and that's all we think pleasure is. What the problem is, says Lewis, we've set our sights too low. We're eating crumbs in the corner of the room when there's a feast prepared before us. We've settled for the crumbs. And yeah, the crumbs have their own little bit of pleasure. But we have completely lost sight of what is available to us. Because God has given us this fundamental desire and drive for pleasure, and He has provided the means to fulfill it in Himself. In communion with Father, Son, and Spirit, God is the all-satisfying object. God is the one in whom our pleasure can be met. He's provided the drive for it, and He's provided the object of it. He offers us true pleasure. Let me just show you just a smattering of verses from the Psalms in case you think I'm making this up. Psalm 37.4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 43, 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and delight. And this is my favorite, Psalm 16, 11. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Another translation says, in your presence is fullness of joy. With eternal pleasures at your right hand. Now, how can you read those and say, well, God doesn't want me to be happy? God doesn't want me to pursue pleasure? Of course he does. It's just that he wants to be the object of that pleasure. The way in which we discover what real pleasure is is that we saturate ourselves in the grace of God and pursue a deep relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where pleasure is. He's the one in whom real pleasure is found. And as we immerse ourselves in His grace and in His love, as we pursue that ever-deepening relationship with Him, we discover a joy that is not the surface-level little joy of the next kick, the next buzz, the next rush. It's a deep and profound joy. It comes from knowing who we are and whose we are. 
And as we just saturate ourselves in the mercy of Christ and live within his embrace, we find a pleasure that just transcends anything you are going to find in a relationship, in a job, in a hobby, in a social activity. All those things may be good, but God says, come to me and I'll show you what real pleasure is. In fellowship with me, you're going to discover that there is fullness of joy in the presence of God. Not this surface level happy clappy la la, but this deep, deep joy of contentment, of peace. Finding our identity, that solid and deep core in your soul. You know that you are loved and accepted and chosen. And that's the, that's the rock solid self out of which you live. That is fullness of joy. In his hand are pleasures forevermore. So God's saying, they're in my hand. Why do you want to take them from over there? Why do you want to take them from your career? Eternal pleasures are in my right hand. And when you start experiencing those pleasures, when you start experiencing the fullness of joy that comes within the embrace of the Father, then you start to look at these other things that we spend so much of ourselves on. We start to realize how truly pathetic they are. We start to look at all the stuff that we spend so much time on, so much money on, so much energy on, so much anxiety over, so much fear, so much worry, so much of ourselves we bring to the stuff. But from the perspective of just basking in the pleasures of God, you look at the stuff with new eyes, you start to see it differently. You start to realize just how hollow it is. You start to see why Solomon wrote, it's meaningless. You can have it all. You can have all the wealth. You can have all the women. You can have everything. It's meaningless. There's nothing to it. If you don't have, if you are not centered and grounded in that relationship with Christ, this other stuff is just so utterly hebel, meaningless. It's folly. Again, it doesn't mean that these things are bad in and of themselves. But it means that when we take our greatest pleasure in something, Whatever you take greatest pleasure in, you've made a God out of that thing we, that you already have. We've already made a God out of the thing we take most pleasure in. So the question is, what is that thing? Is it God or is it something else? Is it a lesser thing? For me, I've always just had this freakish thing where I've loved public speaking. And it's like, I know that appears on people's top 10 lists of things they hate the most, and there's a lot of things I hate that others love and I can't do that others can, you know. But for me, I've just loved, I, you know, I had won a speech competition in Form 2, and since then I've just had this love for public speaking, and now, for me, the expression of that is preaching in this kind of context. But it's still incredibly easy for me to make a God out of preaching. You say, how is that possible? Preaching's this good thing, it's this God honoring thing. Well, it, it can be, but it can also be something that I take pleasure in preaching rather than in God himself. And, and preaching does, it is pleasurable for me. I enjoy it. I feel alive when I'm preaching, but it's so easy for me to make that my greatest pleasure and not have the God of preaching as my greatest pleasure. And when I get to that point, I've made a God out of preaching. And we're all susceptible to this. Is there something in your life that you're making a God out of because you're taking more pleasure in it 
than in the one who has eternal pleasures in his right hand. What is that thing? Is it something that you are just particularly good at? You've got a skill. You've got a, whatever it is, a design skill, a construction skill, a medical skill. And that is, it's you. It defines you. You get a lot of pleasure from it, and that's good. But maybe you've made that a God. Maybe the pleasure you get from that thing is now transcending the pleasure you get from your relationship with Christ. If so, it has become a God to you. It has become an idol to you. And God is saying, I want you to lay that thing down. Because in my presence, the Lord says, is fullness of joy. And I want you chasing after these lesser things at the expense of chasing after me. And maybe there's something in your life that you are chasing after that needs to go. Maybe there's an addiction. You're running after it, the next kick, the next rush. And you just see this is competing with God. This is taking me away from Him, and I need to cut it off. Maybe today's a day for you to make a big call, make a big decision. You put a stake in the ground and say, this is no longer going to be part of my life. You anchor yourself in the one who gives you true pleasure. And with the strength of the Spirit, you say, I'm going to cut this other thing off. Some of you today need to make that call. There's something in your life that needs to go. You've made a God out of something, and it is competing, and it is not compatible with your relationship with Christ. Others of us, there's something there, and it's not that you need to cut it off, but you need to reprioritize it. There's something in your life, it may be a good thing. It may be a God-honoring thing. In and of itself, it's fine. Not all the stuff that Solomon was into was illicit and immoral. There's good things there, God-given things. But it has become for you a God, and you need to reprioritize. And God's just gently tapping at your heart this morning. He's nudging you and saying, hey, that thing, don't shut him out. There's something that needs to be reprioritized. You need to give it less time. You need to give it less energy. You need to allow it less control over you because it's taking over. You need to give it less money. You need to start to starve that thing a little more. Maybe it can stay. Maybe it's got its place. But it has to orbit around the centrality of Christ in your life that you need to reclaim today. And again, friends, this starts not by scrambling after what we need to change and what needs to happen. It starts by anchoring ourselves in Christ. It starts by anchoring ourselves and just tasting the pleasure that He offers, getting a bigger view of what real pleasure and what real joy and what real happiness is. And from that vantage point, you can look with clearer eyes at some of these other things, and you see the hollowness of it. You've had those moments, haven't you, when God just gives you clarity on something. And you just see it for what it is, the hollowness of that thing. Man, I'm spending so much of my time running after it. It is just empty. Maybe now is one of those moments, and God's just showing you something in your life. He's saying, this is empty. It's empty. But I'm going to fill you. I want you to empty yourself so you can be filled with the presence of Christ. Final couple of verses and then we'll finish. Isaiah 55, you don't need to turn there. Just listen to this as we wrap it up this morning. Isaiah says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. That's what God's offering you. Rest, true satisfaction 
without cost, without flailing away, without striving and trying and earning, just this feast. In verse 2, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Isn't that what we spend most of our lives doing? Spending our money on what is not really satisfying. Spending our labor on what does not really delight us, what does not really satisfy us. And we're unfulfilled and we're malnourished. And then God says, listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. God spread a table before us, the Lord's table, table around which we'll gather in a sense in a few minutes. And he invites us to come. He invites us to feast on the body and the blood of Christ, the one in whom true nourishment is found, the one in whom eternal pleasures are are found. The one in whose presence is fullness of joy. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow what? Strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Father, we're longing for that this morning. We turn our eyes upon you. We look full in your wonderful face. We immerse ourselves in your presence where you have said there is fullness of joy. We take hold of your hand in which you have said there are eternal pleasures. And as we do that, Lord, these things of earth, these things in our lives, they just become strangely dim, strangely unimportant. And we see them for the lesser things they are. Oh God, we don't want to be content making mud pies in the slum when you've offered us a holiday at sea. We don't want to be too easily pleased anymore. We don't want to settle for these lesser things anymore. We don't want to have our sights too low anymore, but we lift up our heads this morning and we look into your face and we we ask that you would be the source of all our pleasure and all our happiness, and give us the courage to make the changes in our lives around these other things that we need to, so that they serve you and not the other way around. Give us boldness to make the big calls today that we need to make so that we would find our greatest pleasure in you. We pray it in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.